Welcome to Lunch with Tech Leaders, where we have engaging conversations about software development and cloud engineering with industry leaders and subject matter experts. These episodes are created by the Great Lakes Tech Leaders, an online community of technology practitioners. Please come join the conversation by visiting gltl.rbn.ai. Again, that's gltl.rbn.ai. Now strap in, because we're deploying to production in three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Lunch with Tech Leaders. This is episode, what, 59, I think? So, uh, yeah, we're getting up there. Um, my name is Adam Oberhausen. I'm the Vice President of Customer Solutions with Raybrain Networks, and I'm your host for today. Joining me today, data and software consultant Tom Kowalski. Say hello, Tom. Hello. So, this episode is part two in our series on estimates and productivity. In this episode, we're going to be focusing on how do you maximize your engineering productivity. Along for the ride, we brought our, our guest subject matter expert, Nicole Anderson. How are you doing, Nicole? Doing pretty well. Thanks for having me back. I've been so productive since our last meeting, so. Yeah, I mean, did you did you take any of the practices we talked about with estimates and apply them to your day-to-day? Yeah, um, we actually just launched a pretty big feature, and we were kind of like, taking a look back at how we built it and how we could have done done it better. So we are definitely learning as we go as as uh as I get more involved at meetup. So, mm-hmm. so it's a it's a continuous learning process for me. Yeah. We actually had another customer that we've been working with for a while that I came to the realization that they basically set dates and then work backwards. And so we're actually trying to figure out how we can culturally help them maybe change their ways and think about, you know, instead of, you know, pretending and setting up make-believe dates to complete software projects, you can actually plan them out and have some probability of when you actually get it completed. How about you, Tom? Any uh, any thoughts on what we talked about last time or, um, you know, before we get into uh, what we're going to talk about today? No, I'm excited to jump in, continue our conversation. Oh, yeah. so, great. Yeah, so the first topic on uh, my agenda for today is developer viscosity. We're talking about the speed at which a developer or team of developers can move through the various stages of their workflow. So that includes things like the builds, the tests, the debugging, the deployments. I think a common misconception is it's all about how fast you can write the code, right? Like, and writing the actual code is negligible compared to all the other aspects of the system. So my first question, and we have a product manager here, uh, Nicole, is just like when you evaluate the velocity of a team or try to make them faster, are these things on your mind as a product manager? Like the the the, the speed of the build, the automation in place, the the speed of the tests, because all those things add up to developers waiting, so that they you know the waiting for something to get do- happen that. You know, the more they're waiting or sitting idle, the less they're getting done. So I'm just curious if like how how does that developer viscosity how does how do PMs think about it? It's interesting. I've never heard the phrase before, but um I I think about it, but maybe not in the the examples that you described, which now I am starting to think about, is so so the way that I think about it is I'm kind of like the blocker for the team's distractions. You know, if there's questions from other teams, if there are questions from 
support, marketing, any other department that needs our help. I want to be the first line of defense so that the team is not constantly getting interrupted with questions. But I hadn't actually considered like where are their bottlenecks and where are they sitting around waiting in their day of coding? You know, does it take five minutes for it to build so that they can run whatever they just tested? Like that's probably something that I should be or as our team should be doing in like retro. So like understand, you know, where are you spending parts of your day where we could improve your life and make you more efficient. So that's a takeaway for me. I, I hadn't actually done that exercise in yeah. meetup. Because yeah, I'm not so, as close uh, to the, the engineering process as I was at, at my last place. But yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Long build times are are not a minor inconvenience. They should be uh, a serious bottleneck, serious design challenge that you should tackle head on. Um, there's no there's no excuse in the modern age of the computing power that a build should take a long time. What do you got, Tom? Yeah, you know, I think it depends on your architecture, what you have and what you're building. You know, the ideal scenario is to have that feedback as fast as possible, right? And hitting all scenarios. Uh, but you also have costs involved too. There's, there's always the the play, right? And the time that it takes to develop, you know, make changes. If this is like a legacy application, it takes a lot of time to uh, to update that engineering time. Yeah. One thing I've seen a lot in my career is slow tests, or not slow necessarily, but tests, uh, suites that take long time to run. So again, like that, I think about your, think about my laptop sitting on my desktop here. It can process 10, 10 billion instructions per second. And so if you think about your application and like, does your application even do 10 billion things? Like, so I know it's maybe not an apples to apples comparison, but you should really, there's really no excuse in the age of, of modern, powerful hardware that S should take a long time. And I think the key principle there is the dry principle with testing. Like, don't repeat yourself. Like, if every test starts with a login and then a navigation to another screen and then a navigation to another screen, I guess this is more of an integration test. Like, your tests should be mocked in a way that you bypass all that stuff. Like, you shouldn't have to run a database restore for every test every test you're running right you have to you have to find a ways to short circuit that cheat the system so that your tests are fast lean and fast I feel like this is another podcast episode yeah yeah the rabbit hole so yeah that's the, so i i think it's i'm in your boat too nicole where i never really thought about developer viscosity as something a pm should think about but as i was kind of crafting <laughs> notes for the episode it's like well if you know velocity of your team is your responsibility in some ways as a pm so i think there are ways to like in retro is probably a good way to address some of those identify and address some of those viscosity i imagine the engineers are probably like just well this is the way it is and they may not never really voice it because they just feel like it's that's the way things go but it should be on myself and engineering leadership to like push us to get to continuously get better so if you know, there may be things that they're struggling with that are really annoying to them that they just kind of gotten used to and never really thought to bring it up to us. So it's good for us to ask those questions. Yeah. So one thing that I know that you've experienced, because I've worked with you, Nicole, and, you know, this has come up when we try to adapt new technologies or new techniques into the system, because, you know, you kind of get an idea if you're building something new and you copy it completely, right? You have that knowledge of what you're doing, but we'd always try to incorporate something new, like a little tweak here, better monitoring or whatever. 
And I know you always had hesitations, right? Like, because it's an unknown, unknown, right? How much time it's going to take those engineers to take on, learn that technology. So how do you deal with that? And do you deal with it now? I know you dealt with it with me, right? Like, oh, yeah, we so, AWS feature. And, uh. I don't know if this directly answers your question, but one thing that we're, we are dealing with at, at my company is managing multiple tech stacks. So what our kind of approach is that if we have a, a page of our app that we need to move to the new tech, there's a lot of times where we're like, well, we want to also improve it. You know, maybe we want to redo it. Maybe we want to like completely change how the workflow is. But our our first goal is to replatform it and get it to parity with what it was, like exactly the same. So that way we can test and make sure everything still works. All of our metrics are still good. We didn't, you know, tank anything in the in the replatform. And then once it's stable, then we can start iterating on small changes and do A-B testing on like, well, what if we change this step of the flow? Does it help? get them through the, to the end better. But trying to change too many things at once has kind of plagued us a little bit where it's like, well, we don't really know what change caused the issue. Like maybe our metrics tank, but we don't know. Is it because we changed the workflow or is it because we replatformed and like the metrics were were broken before? Like, so there's just, so taking it one step at a time has helped us. I don't know, but I, I don't know if that, because it's not really directly to your question, but that was just the first thing that came to mind for me was doing it in incremental uh, changes. Yeah, kind of separating it out trying to i would always try to kind of sneak in right if you want to do something new it's like oh we're doing this feature over here right try to oh maybe we should do it this way right um but yeah it's a good idea diligent project product manager making sure those don't sneak in and keep those metrics separate yeah i get where you're coming from though because a lot of times you may never come back to that feature and so you kind of have to mm-hmm. get in what you can at that time or it's not going to happen mm-hmm. so there's there's yeah that, that and there's that at least like little like you know, maybe you're not going to do it all, but you have to get that groundwork, right? That little f- minor change in so you can build off of it, I feel, times two. So. All right. Let's bring it back to maximizing productivity. Mm-hmm. Next on the agenda, distractions. We all know uh, what it's like trying to get things done. I think even remote, there's probably, I don't know. I don't really know. I In the olden times when we worked in office, there was distractions and then... And I call them the before times. Um, and now we're remote, and so it's just it's just notification fatigue. Um, you've got, you know, things like your Slack, your Teams. I want to talk a little bit about meetings. I want to talk about listening to music. I want to talk about your emotional state. There's this idea that a lot of developers talk about of being in the flow. You're in the flow of productivity, and I want to talk about some of the... Um, how that can actually be a detriment to your the quality of your code. So let's start with meetings, right? Okay, so meetings are the bane of many engineers' existence, right? I mean, you have the planning meeting, you have the meeting to plan the planning meeting, you've got the, you got the daily stand-up, you've got the, the feature refinement meeting, you've got this, this, I mean, it's all part, there's all these ceremonial meetings, and then there's meetings on top of the ceremonial meetings for Agile. Um, my biggest advice to anyone is you have to be a selective attendee for meetings. Like, if I'm not, if I feel like I'm not going to be actually providing value to a meeting, I will decline it. Um, if someone asked me to attend a meeting and there's no like description about what the meeting is about or why I would be invited to it, I politely ask, why do you want me at this meeting? And you know, what are we going to be talking about? Um, and there's even times where I'll say, I'll accept a meeting invite, but I'll tell the person, 
hey, I'm going to come to this meeting, but I can only stay for a few minutes to talk about the piece you need me to talk about, right? Because, I mean, we've all been in the meeting that lasts an hour, but there's only maybe five or 10 minutes of it that are relevant to what you're doing. So it probably varies, you know, depending on your stage of your career, how many meetings you get involved in. But yeah, I just can say that I've, I've sit in a lot of meetings in my career and I've, I'm very regimented about what meetings I will actually attend at this point. So any, any thoughts on meeting attendance, Tom, and how you deal with them in your workplace? So yeah, I think there's two sides of it, right? There's those attending the meeting, kind of what you talked about. And it's kind of, I feel like there's like a cultural thing too of, you know, being able to decline the meeting and say, you know what, yeah, I'm not going to attend or asking for more information. Hopefully it's a you know, great culture that enables that you to, to do that, to, to ask those questions, decline if you're not going to be there. I would say that if you're a, maybe a more meet a junior level person or mid-level, you should ask your team lead if you should attend a meeting, right? Yeah. Because I think it's part, it's your leader's job to maximize yeah. your time. So if you're in a leadership position, you should be steering you should be steering your direct reports away from pointless meetings. Sorry to interrupt you, Tom. Yeah, no, because that's where I was going with the next is kind of like the other side and those that create the meetings. Um, and my my biggest thing with that is is you should only have a meeting if you're you know it, it's going to be very async if it can't be done asynchronous, right? If it's you're, you you're having that meeting to have a conversation to brainstorm something, but if something can be done by, you know, Slack and posting in a very asynchronous way, it should definitely be done that way. I can only imagine your calendar looks a lot like a Tetris board, Nicole. And from a PM perspective, meetings got to be unavoidable, but like, how do you, how do you make sure that you're maximizing your efficiency with your meetings? A losing game of Tetris, for sure. Very few spots. But I, what I've started to do is just block off time uh, for myself so uh, yeah. that I have dedicated time to work because it's kind of like you, I, I think you alluded to like Pomodoro type technique where like you have a set amount of time that you're doing something. I really have to force alert, alert. to do that. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know if you said it or if I read it somewhere, but um, yeah, so that that's helpful for me because a lot of times what will end up happening in my calendar is I'll just have like 30 minutes or less between meetings and there's really not much you can do there. But as an engineer, I think, yeah, like they should not be in that situation. And, and it's up to me and the engineering manager to prevent that from happening to them as much as possible for our team. So they're in regular uh, scrum type meetings. You know, obviously those are unavoidable. But if we're planning a project or if there's a bunch of unknowns, like I try to field that as much as possible before we bring it to the team and start getting them involved. Because there's a lot of meetings that happen before, like if a project is being discussed and it's not on our plate yet, but it's like in the works there's a lot of i don't want to say pointless but there's a lot of meetings that are would waste their time if we were to start bringing them in too early so i feel a responsibility to to do that to be the goalie for them and to keep them as productive as possible and when they do need us yeah we are just like 90 percent dependent on slack like it's slack threads discussing there very rarely do we have to actually get on a call to, i mean other than the stand-ups but those are really efficient ways to like unblock the engineers from what i've seen okay yeah and, and insights from everyone there yeah, having that transparency, it shouldn't just be Slack, right? And you have to look up here and there, but whatever tool you're using, if it's a company wiki or whatever, you should have that information out there so that others can see it, talk about it, right? It shouldn't be presented to you just in a meeting. Uh, and, and if you are going to have a meeting to talk about it, it should be you know, available to look at before the meeting. 
I know there's some. Yeah, we try to use our yeah. the event description in the Google Calendar as much as possible to have like the objectives, the goals of the meeting, any documents that are going to be shared or used beforehand. Uh, we have a pretty good practice of that. I honestly was not good at it, but I've I've seen it done and trying to adopt it where it's like actually very thorough to understand like the point of the meeting, which is helpful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I want to move on to the next distraction. This one uh, should be a lively debate. Listening to music while you're an engineer. Now, if you've been to any, most of the dev shops I've worked at, you kind of just see in the before times, you know, everyone was at their station, had these had these types of headphones on, you know, sitting at their cube, you know, listening to music or whatever and, and typing away. Um, some people believe that music, you know, can actually increase your productivity and keep you energized and focused. Others say it's a distraction because it takes away, you know, your brain is using parts, your parts of your brain are being used to kind of process music and, and listen to the lyrics and things like that. It can be a distraction. And, you know, if you hear some lyrics, it might make you think about, you know, some other things in your life. So I would recommend people to, if you've been, if you're on the side of like, I listen to music all day when I work and it helps me be productive, I would say, running your own experiment, like do go a week with no music. And I'm kind of talking about engineers and writing code, like, and look at the quality of your code on a week where you didn't listen to music versus a week where you did listen to music. So me personally, I tend to listen to, I tend to listen to my headphones all day, but I, I listen to mostly like instrumental music or like the, you know, like the, the new wave, you know, 852 <laughs> Hertz, heal your, heal your mind stuff. So if I have lyrics in the music I listen to, I cannot focus on my work at all. So that's just me. How about you guys? Do you have any thoughts or tricks for listening to music or don't listen to music while you're working? When I would write code many moons ago in the before times, as you said, I would always listen to music, but it was just regular, you know, lyric music. And it, Mm -hmm. I think kind of like what you said, it has to be songs that I know. So it's not like... I'm not like thinking about it. It's just, it's just in the background. And it, I loved it. I, it made me more productive, I feel like, but I guess I never tested that, but I I don't know. I just, it helps me, it helped me kind of just like get into the, into the zone. So I, I was a big fan of it when I, when I wrote code. Now, no, I I don't listen to music anymore. Now I just, I play videos and stuff in the background, but um, I, I never, I guess it, it, I always associated it with actually programming. So it was, it was a different vibe. As a product manager, it just has not helped me. <laughs> Maybe I should try it. Yeah, I, I agree with the no words. That's kind of what I listen to. And if it is, it has to, uh, you know, be songs that I, I know, right? Um, and I'm not even really listening. It's just kind of in the background. But it's more of getting me in that environment of anything, right? Like if I turn it on, like I have like a set playlist or I'll do like a play radio off of this. But kind of like that same set of music that I listen to that just kind of gets me in that that flow state. I don't know if you're going to start talking about that, but it's more about the environment. And I i don't even really hear the music, but it just kind of gets me in that zone. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's move on to your emotional state. Uh, still on the distraction thread here. And I think just talking about your emotional state when you're trying to do engineering work can be a big impact on your productivity if the, if there's something bother you or if you're you know something's going on in your personal life i mean this applies to any job right like you're going to be distracted it's going to be hard to write code if something if you're if you're not in the right state of mind so 
couple pro tips I have is just like be proactive with your emotional state. Like even if you just have a conversation with a good friend or walk out a quick walk around the block to clear your mind, you know, just the act of just the act of doing something to address your mental state can often be enough of a catalyst so that you can focus on your job. Just wanted to quickly talk about your emotional state when you're working. Any any feedback or comments there, Nicole or Tom? Yeah, it makes sense. I think the music kind of helps me or the environment, right? Once yeah. I, I could be in a bad mood or whatever emotional state, but I think that's what kind of helps, right? Like I, you know, get in my office, I got things set up the right way, put my headphones on certain music, and then it kind of gets me in that zone where I'm not, not thinking about other things can distract me. And lastly, on my destruction, my destruction, my distraction thread is the flow state, the the coveted flow state for developers. Epitome of productivity. You're in the zone, uh, laser focused state, which I I, th- I think I historically have been in that. You know, I've I've experienced that flow state. It's fun, uh, but after kind of doing some research for the show, it kind of made me think about if you're producing that much code without sufficient reflection. You can actually kind of go down rabbit holes and the quality of your code could suffer if you're not staying grounded in the present. And one of the recommended recommended ways to kind of almost avoid the flow state is to mix in some paired programming when you're working. Um, that way you're just like not... Yeah, it was new to me to even hear that being in the flow state could be a negative impact. So I was just like, I thought it was interesting to share that insight that some some people out there actually say avoid the flow state by doing paired programming or you know using the Pomodoro technique, which we'll talk about, so that you have that five minute break to reflect and not get too deep in the woods on whatever it is you're coding. Yeah, I agree with that. I all right, I can completely see it. Right? Yeah, you go down a rabbit hole, and yeah, that's good to step back. I want to hear the Pomodoro technique. That's a good idea to to step back and to take a look. Yeah, and on that, we can segue into time management, which is the Pomodoro technique, which, Tom, I think you're a fan of. I recall you trying various variations of it. Um, so can you give us a quick overview of what Pomodoro technique is? Yeah, I think you know it's basically, you know, you set some time that you're focused, right? And then you set some time that you're having a break. Is that, That's the, the general gist of it. The I think the, that standard amount of time is at, at 20 minutes, or 25 and then like a five minute break. Uh, and you have to be very diligent about it in order for it to work. Yeah. So uh, like, for example, if someone sends you a Slack message when you're in the middle of a Pomodoro, you would reply, hey, I can, I, can I get back to you in 20 minutes? No, you uh, don't reply. You turn off, okay. your, off your messages. There you go. So yeah. So the, and then there's the other uh, side of that where if you're, let's say you're like, your timer goes off, but you're almost done with something. Um, so you have to be careful with that to kind of just keep your Pomodoro going. Like if you're going to go an extra minute or two, that's fine, but you need to stop and then take your break, take your five minutes and then get back into your next Pomodoro. And I think part of the genius of this technique is it kind of allows you to measure yourself at the end of each day and you can kind of figure out how many pomodoros you can get through in a day on average and then that allows you to kind of plan your day like you know say if you can get you know your six pomodoros in you know that's you know your, your six blocks of focus work 
then you can account for your meetings and whatever else you have to do. And I just think it's a way, it's just a time, a, a time, it's a time management te technique that seems to work with a lot of people. I've never tried it with any sort of discipline, but I'm curious to know if you guys have any time management tricks you do. I usually have like a, a pattern of my day. Like I, I, when I get started, I'll, I'll check the email, I'll review my calendar and then I'll kind of put those things away. And then I, you know, kind of have a block, my morning block and then I get into my morning meetings and then I just kind of have like a, an established cadence of my days. Um, but I've never really done the Pomodoro technique. The, the other side of it too, is to focus on one thing during that Pomodoro, that right. session that you're, you're doing and it, it helps with time boxing. That's what I really like. You know, you can kind of set like, okay, this is going to take an hour, right? Three Pomodoros for this thing. And like, that's it. And you hold yourself to that for the day or, you know, maybe week or whatever. And that that's the most helpful thing for me with the Pomodoros, the, the time box. And we talked about the, the benefits of that. Um, but yeah, it kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah. And you can be flexible with your timing, but you just want to stick with your time. It, the research I did said, you know, anywhere from 15 to 40 minutes is an appropriate range for a Pomodoro. Um, but you don't want to like vary. You don't want to do one at 15 minutes and then one at 35. You want to just pick your time and stick with it. I'm realizing I've never really been this disciplined with it. I want to try it now, though, that you're talking about it, because the way that it's happened for me is there's there's two types of work. There's the work that I can just jump into and do and I have no like mentally no blockages. There's a lot of kind a lot of types of work that falls into and programming was like that for me. I never had a problem just diving in. People need help. People slack me like all the one offs, like problem solving type stuff I can do. Now, when you have to write a paper or do some kind of like creative, you know, coming up with something and write it in a document, that's where I start to like want to avoid that work. And that that is what I don't want to do or the work that does not come easy to me. And I start to avoid it and then I start to procrastinate it. So I've never tried it for engineering work because like to me, I would never procrastinate writing code. I just like would love to do it and dive into it. But then like that other side of my brain where like I have to like write a paragraph about something in like a document and then I would just like get writer's block and like not want to do it. And so then I was like, okay, well, what if I force myself by setting a timer? But maybe I was doing it for the wrong reasons because the way you're describing it is like you should have like be able to predict how your day is going and have these Pomodoros. Like, I don't know. It just It's really making me rethink my approach because for me, it's more of like a I'm hitting a writer's block or I'm hitting a, a wall, a procrastination wall. Well, now you have ChatGPT to help with that writer's block. Yes. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not even joking, but like it should like be able to. I've never I haven't experienced writer's block since ChatGPT became a thing. And uh, um, yes. It's a good, interesting way to think about the Pomodoro. And I think you're right. Like, I know there's work that I procrastinate too, and maybe putting it in a Pomodoro just for the sake of saying, hey, this is my time block to actually do this work um, could be effective. Mm -hmm. Okay. We've got the next topic to maximize your, your engineering productivity, which is teamwork. So common analogy, I'm not a huge fan of sports analogies, but like, you know, if there's a if a teammate gets injured or, you know, needs to take a break from being on the field, the idea is you you have another person that can step up and, and do the role. Having a, a team, having collaboration within your team and making sure that you don't have knowledge silos within your within your team 
is a great way to kind of maximize team productivity. And there's common ways to, the most common way that I've seen is to establish a culture of paired programming with your, with your teams. So it's, you know, it's definitely more than just two developers sharing a keyboard, whether that's in person or remote. I think what we just talked about with Pomodoro can be applied to paired programming. And I, from what I've read, you know, mature agile teams should be doing like 50 50 to 60% of their work should be done in paired programming. And then the other, you know, 50 to 40% would be done, you know, solo. Not sure how easy that is in practice. I came from, you know, previous company that I worked with where there wasn't much paired programming. Um, I think it was sporadic, like wasn't part of the culture. So I'm curious to know if like you've seen paired programming and how effective it can be. And do you guys do it at your current employers there? Nicole, are you guys doing paired programming much? Very rarely from what I've seen. I think it's it's if if they need to work together to solve a specific problem, I, I, it's come up, but it's not a natural instinct. I think part of the problem we run into is that half of our scrum team is in Europe and half is in the US. So then mm-hmm. when we're coming online, we have a little bit of an overlap with them. So like each individually, like groups, they could probably pair program more effectively, but overlapping, it doesn't seem to happen as often. Like the US engineers could pair and the Europe engineers could pair, but overlapping, they really only talk during the standups a little, you know, for the most part. And Tom, what's yeah. your take on paired programming and your experience yeah, with it? I'm a huge fan of it. And I like the those numbers that you put up, like, um, you know, half the time or more. Uh, and I completely agree with that. I know some engineers you know, might not necessarily say that they like it, but there's just so much knowledge transfer. And especially for me, that like the flow state of having one person, you know, his hands on the keyboard and, uh, you know, another person, you know, thinking about different things, you know, as you're going through, you know, catching, catching issues, you know, as the other person's typing. And I I love it. And I kind of miss it. You know, in a previous organization, yeah, it was more sporadic, but, uh, you know, I tried to do, we tried to do as much as we could um, at this organization that I'm working at now, not so much. And I was just thinking about how I missed that and trying to uh, incorporate it again. So, yeah. Yeah, I feel like it could, paired, paired programming is almost maybe not even the best way to describe it because I feel like pairing with your work in any field can produce better results like right like if i'm going to work with someone on a business proposal for a customer like right it's it's almost almost always get better results pairing with someone for some portion of time to get the feedback and just like work together on something versus working in a a box right Mm -hmm. and then you know the knowledge silos i think is what sticks out to me here like and it goes back to our first topic which was the developer viscosity and if you have people on your team that are the knowledge silo, they can become the bottleneck. They're not there. You maybe they're on PTO, and all of a sudden your whole sprint gets derailed because this one person who has the knowledge isn't there. So, paired programming is a way to mitigate some of that risk. And I think you know, from a PM perspective, like, do you ever deal with knowledge silos being a challenge you have to overcome with with delivering stuff, Nicole? And I think again, just like probably maybe thinking about things that a typical PM wouldn't is like, how do you make sure your, your delivery team doesn't have these knowledge silos and how to mitigate them? Yeah, we actually ran into this pretty recently because uh, part of our product was written as almost like a microservice and only a couple of people really understood how it was built and it was completely different infrastructure, database, everything it was completely on an island. And so when some teams merged together, there were a lot of people coming over who had no knowledge of this new, you know, they were used to working on the the core product and this new product was completely new to them. 
Um, and we had an outage and, you know, kind of like what you're saying, due to PTO and, and limited availability, it, it probably took us quite a bit longer than it should have to get back stable because there was just really only one or two key people that knew how to fix it. So what we are trying to do as a result of that, like postmortem is better documentation of the way that this system is, is architected and built and making sure we have alarms set up that can be monitored by the entire team and understood by the entire team. Like what, what are the AWS services that it's using? How, how do they work together? Where, you know, like the just basic stuff like that, we didn't know. We didn't know if it's using a queue or a Lambda or where they live or how they operate, like just getting that on paper and having the person who has that knowledge, like share it with us and present to, to us how it works. So that was kind of the first step for me was like, okay, we need to understand what, what the system looks like from like, cause it, for me, it was a black box. I had no idea how it was built and, and most of the engineers didn't either. So, and that well, is yeah. that knowledge sharing, that learning um, ties right into my next, you know, way to maximize your pro- productivity. Well, before before that, you j- uh, jump into that, like yeah, the, yeah, that knowledge that. sharing, you should make sure that it, it, when you say documentation, it should be good documentation. Uh, and that's a very key thing too. So things like that, like knowing the the system, right? Like how it's kind of architected at a high level, that should all be documented very well uh, and easy for any team to look at. I wouldn't lump it in with like pair programming, knowledge sharing. Uh, you want to make sure that it's very easy to get any of that information that you need through your, you know, documentation, whatever that is, Mortal Wiki, uh, preferably a readme right in the repo. In my in yeah. my opinion. No, and, and with, with links to C, yeah, the, the CICD and in the readme, how to fire it up yourself and run it, make a change, that, that should all all be in there. Very Yeah, I don't uh just in my experience, like I found like the two, like the confluence trying to find things in confluence can be challenging as I've kind of gone through my paces in the tech world. Like I just a nice repo with the documentation right in the repo is my preferred uh, avenue because it's it tends to stay more up to date too. Like yeah, I think things get things get stale when they're in like a separate documentation repository. Um, but uh, yeah, I, and I'm sure it, it comes down to a cultural thing too in the organization. Either your documentation is kind of has there's an upkeep culture, or things are just left to become stale. Yeah, as an application. Everything in that repo, documentation, tests, big, big proponent of that. It can all be versioned together, pipeline, all of it. Okay. Um, the last topic I had on my agenda was just continuous learning. If you're going to maximize your productivity in this field, you're always going to be learning. I think it's almost not sure what the word is. It's an impossible task to keep up with the pace of technology changes. I would encourage our listeners to, you know, don't ever think that it's your employer's responsibility to train you or shape your career. It's your job to figure out what you need to learn, and it's your job to learn it. Yes, your employer should have a, a part in this, especially if they're a good employer. They're going to encourage you and you know let you know, hey, we're going to be you know, moving to Azure, so maybe you want to learn some things about Azure, for example. But like, ultimately, it's up to you. It's your career. You need to own it. You need to read the books. You need to look at the blogs. You need to watch the videos, attend the conferences, join the user groups, uh, enroll in the courses. Never stop learning is my message there. 
And so it can be daunting, I think, from a if you're a technology professional, um, because the amount of languages that continue to pop up, the amount of frameworks that continue to pop up, and you know, you've got your you got your day to day job, so there's forty hours there. You've got your personal life, your kids, your significant other. I mean, it's all um, it's all comes back to time management and. I, I do think if you want to be successful in this field, you should expect to put in another 10 to 20 hours per week of your own time, sharpening your skills and continually continuing to learn. Maybe that's a bit much, 10 to 20. I, I don't know. That's, that's yeah, a, I, I think, you know, maybe if you're lumping other things together, just personal improvement in general. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. And take advantage of your employers. Uh, it You know, if you have a a budget dedicated to learning because a lot of employers will give you money to go to conferences or buy courses, you know, make sure you, yeah. if you being, being aware of what's available to you. Anything in your experience, Tom, or you'd be like, how do you approach continuous learning? Is it just kind of chasing what interests you or? Yeah. I was thinking about that and I, I guess I don't have a good thing for me. It's, I just want to. So I, I don't know. I don't know a good technique to, to help with that, but I have a problem of, of too much for, you know, I'm just, that's what I'm, I'm constantly doing. Uh, like, yeah. Oh, what's the, what's a better way to do this? What's a better way. Right. And I just, you know, we'll spend a lot of time just researching. So I kind of have the opposite problem. I don't have any. Yeah. On that. A lot of my, not my focus lately has been on becoming multi-cloud certified. I think focusing on an area helps, you know, the more you can niche down, uh, or, you know, pick a subject that you really want to become an expert at, and that helps. Um, right now, I've been focusing a lot of, on, you know, leveling up my multi. I've worked primarily in AWS, so I'm spending a lot of time learning GCP and Azure lately, and that helps me kind of stay focused on that. The other thing I'd say that's worked for me is, like, especially with coding, which is something I enjoy to do, um, but I don't really do it in my day-to-day, -day, but, like, I actually code things that make my job easier, right? Like, I actually write write small applications that I, I benefit from, that I can use um, as a way to sharpen and keep those coding skills sharp. How about you, Nicole, in the PM world and, you know, coming from a tech background, do you have to stay up to date on the latest and greatest or do you focus on product management skills now? What do you do? Uh, I guess I dabble just out of interest like Tom, not not nearly to the level of depth, I'm sure. But I, yeah, I think it's more of a hobby for me of just interested in what what is new and evolving in tech. But that I, I don't know that it directly impacts my, my job. I think my my day to day is mostly focused on things that are really specific to the company I'm working at, which for my own professional growth may not be actually the best approach to your point of like constantly getting better. I, I definitely suffer from kind of getting into the weeds of like the problems of the day to day of like the company I'm at that may not if I go somewhere else, you know, are just going to be different problems. But it's it's very easy to get kind of like in light uh, uh consumed by the world of, of the company you're in, which I have su um, suffered from in my career that I, I should probably work towards improving. I can relate. That's how I was before my current job where I'm a consultant now. So you have to, I have to ha kind of have a more broad, you know, knowledge of things where if you're kind of working for one company for 10 years, you know, you tend to just become an expert in all the things they do. And yeah. those other those other tech stacks kind of become irrelevant because they're not part of your day to day. Oh, you know, try to incorporate. So back to the little technology changes and process improvements. I would always try to incorporate what 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 is new out there and what I like, you know, and where, you know, things are going. And that kind of always helped me stay interested 
Uh, so that's all I got for today. What do you guys, any other things you guys want to mention or talk about in terms of uh, maximizing engineering productivity? I think I'm going to get into back into doing Pomodoros. I haven't done it yeah. in a while, but uh, I think, yeah, it'll definitely help, especially with what I'm working on now. So, yeah, I'm excited we brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to uh, do a combination of blocking off on my calendar a significant amount of time and doing a Pomodoro in that time so that I hold myself to actually being productive in that time block. Cool. Yeah, so uh, recap of what we touched on today. We talked about developer viscosity, the speed at which you can your workflow is as a developer. Touched on distractions and how to navigate the noise. Uh, some good techniques there. Discussed time management. And it sounds like big takeaway from today is that everyone's going to go and uh, do some Pomodoros. So next time we do a show together, I'll, I'll ask how the Pomodoro uh, time management techniques working for you all. Yeah, one thing to add to the, the Pomodoros, it, it helps with... Like the planning too, right? Now you do po party poker, maybe planning poker. Um, it always helped me too. Is like how many Pomodoros would this take? You know, kind of breaking it down a little further. So just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. I could see a mature Agile team that is measuring their point, doing their pointing based on some kind of Pomodoro combination. We talked about teamwork and how paired programming is critical to avoid knowledge silos. And, uh, just ensure that everyone on the team is uh, able to contribute. And then lastly, we talked about continuous learning and how it's uh, your responsibility to keep learning, not your employers, okay? And with that, I uh, want to thank everyone for listening today. Um, hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for joining us in the audience here. Um, we'd love to have you join us again next week where Ray Welker is going to be continuing his series on infrastructure as code, strategies, and best practices. Be sure to tune in. Thank you. All right. Thank you.